y'all. Welcome back to another episode of the Passionate Stewardship Podcast, a podcast for helping professionals who strongly believe in supporting their community and the humans who live there. I am your host, Dr. Sherry. So this month, we have been deep diving into radical self-care and its benefits to our lives. Also touched on how beneficial it is for the life of our organizations because of the nature of the work that we as human service professionals and social workers face on a daily basis. In today's episode, we're staying within the organization, human services and social work. It's people work, period. We are supporting people. We are advocating for people. We're walking with people. We're standing with people. And sometimes, you know, during the most vulnerable times in their lives. I do not do client-centered work anymore, but I know clients come to the table with their whole selves and with all the things that make them uniquely them. And as professionals, many times we do as well, which is why radical self-care is so important. Now, the things that some of our clients also bring to the table that us as professionals can also bring to the table are mental health diagnoses. You know, it's just not always the client. It is always the professional. And that does not make that person not qualified to do the work. So how do we show up for those staff persons and our team members when they are struggling with mental health? How do we offer services and processes and programs and concessions for our staff or for our teams in the same way that we do for our clients. What does that look like for the professional? So today, we're going to discuss how organizations and specifically how HR can create stigma-free workplaces so our folks can show up unapologetically as their whole self with all their stuff and how as leaders and systems can and should support and dismantle any stigma that may exist around your team, your team members, your staff, and what supports you can put in place for your staff when they are struggling in the mental health department. So to lend a voice to this conversation today, I have friend to the show, HR specialist and virtual assistant, Miss Brittany. Hey girl, hey. Hey, how y'all doing? So let's just dig in. Let's not waste any time. So you are an HR specialist at the organization where you are. Refresh our listeners about the organization where you are. So it's a nonprofit that is located in Hyattsville, but we have two other offices in Frederick, Maryland and Baltimore, Maryland. And we have houses within Prince George's County, Montgomery County, Frederick County, Baltimore County. And our client-facing employees provide services to our clients that are either intellectually or developmentally disabled. And it's around probably with the DSP's direct support professionals, probably around 100 employees that we have right now. Okay. Yep. That was going to be my follow-up question. How many professionals? (laughs) That's a pretty big organization. Right. So we're talking 100 professionals that are intimately working with individuals who have developmental disabilities. Mm -hmm. So it can range from cognitive to paired with some mental health. Right. 
They are showing up every day providing these hands-on services, which can be daunting and stressful work. Right. So how do you suggest employers and HR professionals approach conversations about mental health with their employees? Because I am certain that with a hundred staff that are working various shifts that are dealing with a magnitude of client stuff, there is still stuff that they have to deal with themselves. Right. How do you suggest employers and HR professionals approach conversations about mental health with their employees? Generally speaking, not for, I'm going to talk about my organization after. I think staff retreats would be great, especially if you work for an organization that could do that. So where you guys could come together, just have intimate conversations in regards to mental health. So whether you are just educating and then allowing people to ask questions, to grasp better understanding, but also making sure that everyone that's in the audience knows that this person or everybody may not be able to use the correct language because they just don't know. So being able to remove that feeling out of it and not take it so personal, if someone may say something that could be deemed as derogatory. But for my organization, because it's a 24-7 organization that is client-facing, staff retreats probably wouldn't be able to happen because we can't close down our facilities, our housing, our the day programs. Basically trying to find ways that we can bridge the gap between the employers and even the clients. So it could be developmental or mental health fairs. Some professionals can come out and just have a one-on-one conversation with their employees to explain to them the signs of mental health illnesses and then also help them even further educate them depending on the level um, of the client that they have. So I think that would be easier for my organization. But if your organization can do staff retreats, that would be great. So staff retreats sound like an amazing idea. I mean, it's also a good chance for folks to just kind of get out of their normal surroundings, you know, just a change of scenery, a change of pace, especially to just be with your colleagues outside of, absolutely, um, it builds staff morale. (laughs) So that's, um, I think staff retreats would be a good idea. I also think a lot of times, you know, I I think a lot of this is a top-down approach. It starts Mm -hmm. from management. And I know that you and I were kicking back some questions that we could, you know, kind of let be kind of the foundation for our conversation today. And, you know, one of the the questions that we had been kind of kicking back and forth is, you know, how much responsibility is it? Of management. And I feel like in the field of human services and social work, like management has a, and I feel like HR is also encompassed under management. Right. Right. It is encompassed under management. And management has a significant responsibility to ensure that employees' mental health is, you know, is so, it's sound. Right. You know, it is not their sole responsibility. But they have a responsibility. A person still has to take charge of their mental health and they still have to be responsible for themselves. But because human service professionals and social workers, they are working with vulnerable populations and individuals who've experienced so much trauma, they are at increased risk of experiencing secondary trauma and 
when I say my favorite, it's my favorite because I love to talk about it. I love to walk people through preventing it. And that's burnout. Right. You know, <laughs> management, kind of, they have a, I do. <laughs> management has a duty to create that supportive work environment that promotes well-being of its people. And I think that starts, you know, with that goes back to what you said, like the staff retreat or, you know, the mental health resources, like you just mentioned. Within the organization where you are, is there any therapy for for staff? Is there any counseling for staff? Um, We do have therapists on staff. Generally speaking, those therapists, from what I know, they help clients that don't come to the day program. They're just outpatients. But from what I have heard in conversations is that we could utilize that part of our staff for if employees do need professional mental health services. So they wouldn't have to technically come out of pocket. I know they wouldn't work for free, but I don't think that we you would pay the full rate as using their services because they are an employee. That's awesome. And the flip side of it, everybody knows if you're going to do human services work and social work, and if you're looking to make six figures, this ain't it, sis. So <laughs> the fact that fa- human services, <laughs> this ain't it, sis. So the fact that you, that they are able to obtain this level of service and it's at a sliding scale fee for the professional, it's awesome because therapy can be expensive and some therapists take insurance and some therapists don't. Does the organization you work with, do they have the employee assistance programs, EAPs? So we do. The information that I found is kind of dated. I know that the flyer that I did find is kind of old, but I know that we did in the past. And because we're changing insurance companies, most likely that's going to change also. But you don't always have to go through your own organization. You can go through the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. They have a hotline that you can call, and I believe they possibly may have like an email or chat as well that you can reach out to them so they can provide assistance with you. And it's not just for mental health. It's also for financial and social issues and um, to help like with any problems that may affect your job performance. Um, So, yeah, that's also a resource as well if your organization doesn't have it or doesn't offer it or you're not sure. Okay, awesome. So how can managers and also colleagues, because, you know, sometimes the support needs to come from management, but it's also really good to get that support from your colleagues. So how can managers and colleagues support an employee who may be struggling with mental health issues? I know for me, like I was explaining to you earlier, there's a gentleman, he knows I do not work in payroll, but he will call me every time there's a payroll issue a health insurance issue, even though I just offer um, the pamphlets and the the application form for health insurance. Those are persons that I've hired. I always make sure after the onboarding process that if you have any questions, um, if you don't know who you need to contact, you can always give me a call or shoot me an email or even a text as long as it's when, you know, hours, business hours. But it really just depends on how that person is establishing that relationship with them. I know for a lot of C-suite management, they don't really establish a lot of relationships with employees unless they work side by side with each other. They don't really tend to branch out and reach out and make sure that, hey, if you have any questions, open door, blah, blah, blah. Um, But I know for HR, that's what we have to do all the time. It doesn't matter if they work in HR, payroll, client facing, C-suite, it doesn't matter. 
we're always that person that's going to be able to provide support to them, regardless if it's mental health or just employee relation type questions. So I think that that's a good thing, that at least he knows that he can reach out to somebody. But I think it also can be problematic if there isn't compassion across the board. Right. You know, everybody that works under me at Wesley Shelter knows that my motto is closed mouths don't get fed. I'm not a mind reader. If you need the support, come talk to me. Like, right. I, I won't know some things if you don't come and talk to me. I am the type of executive director, like I need to know what's going on. Like I want to, I want to be able to support you. I know when to stay in my lane, but I, I need to know when I need to support you. But if you need some support, let me know. Is there a level of training that is being had for managers Because you are an organization that works with clients who have developmental disabilities and also some mental health. So is there any training that's had with your frontline staff and also your management, particularly your management and supervisors, to be able to identify maybe when a staff person might be struggling with some mental health? You know, so they know when to identify, you know what, maybe we need to reel this person in. Maybe we need to sit down and have a conversation with this person. I don't know if that has happened in the past, but since I've been with the organization, I haven't experienced it. We just did like a communication training, which some people, it worked worked really well. And I see them using it in their everyday um, and some employees, no. Um, They just went right back to however they communicate. And because the client-facing employees are a mixed group of people from other cultures, let me say a lot of the employees are from other um, countries um, that are client-facing. So it may be probably more in our Baltimore and Frederick office where they are um, citizens, U.S. citizens. Um, They were born here, raised here. Um, but the office that I'm at, the headquarters, it is a lot of um, client-facing employees that are from other countries. So that comes into play, too, because I know some cultural differences, some cultural differences mm-hmm. don't believe mm-hmm. in mental health issues. They don't believe in mental illnesses. Um, they have their own perspective on how that stuff works. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that would ever be a training. I know for the online trainings that I offer there are some um, questions in regards to mental health, but it's more so how the employee is viewing the client and not you as the employee. So how do you think employers and HR professionals, so it seems like there is some, some cultural stigma. I think there, as much as we see now that there is much more attention around mental health than ever before. Right. Mental health used to be one of those things that you do not talk about. I am really happy to see tables are turning when it comes to conversations around mental health. It's unfortunate that there are events that are happening in our world that are causing those conversations to happen because 
those conversations have are beginning to happen because way too many people have lost their lives. So now we are starting to talk about mental health even more. Right. But specifically for the human services field, I don't think we talk about the provider, the human service professional, the social worker. I don't think we talk about the mental health for us enough. I don't think it's talked Yes, there are more conversations that are being had about mental health, and I'm really happy about it. You know, every time I kind of log on to Instagram, you have somebody who's created a cute T-shirt that is like, F my anxiety. Right. You know, all of these (laughs) T-shirts that are bringing awareness. Our coffee mugs. (laughs) Right. uh, To mental health. And people are... It's almost like wearing it as a badge of honor. Like, I'm not going to let it define me. It is it is a diagnosis that I have, but it doesn't make me this crazy person. It doesn't right. make me this bad person. Right, or less am, than. Or, right, or less than. I am still getting up and going to work every day. I am still a boss. I am still beautiful. I am still all of these things. This is just something that I struggle with. But I think in the workplace, especially in a field that we hold so much of other people's shit all day, every day. Yes. We are faced (laughs) with other people's trauma, whether it be client trauma or staff trauma. I think it is often underscored how much HR hears about everybody's personal shit that's going on in their life. And it's almost like, you know, my heart aches for some of the stuff that I hear. I'm a fixer and I always want to fix something. So if you don't want me to fix it, then don't tell me. Because I want to fix it. Right. No, really. No. So one of the questions I always ask people when they come into my office, are you giving me this information because you want me to fix it? You want me to listen? Or you want my support? Or you want my advice? Because I need to know what hat I need to have on. Because I'm always ready to try to fix it. But in fixing it, I have to also know what I am putting on myself. Right. But I always want to give my team, because they are an amazing group of people, and I know they are more than capable of handling any and everything that is thrown at them. And I want to always give them the autonomy to do so. But I want them to know that they know I got their back 1,000%. But I have to always preface it because I will go in Fixer mode. I, get, mm-hmm. I will put on my Olivia Pope hat. Like, let's let's do it. Come on, gladiators, no let's book, ride. No book what? ready. Taking the gladiator, gladiators, let's ride. So <laughs> I'm ready. But I think it is often underscored that as professionals, like we still come to the table with our stuff. Yes. We still come to the table with our own anxiety. We still come to the table with our own depression, whether it's situational depression, whether it's major depression, whether it's manic depression, whether it's bipolar disease, whatever it is, seasonal depression, whatever it is, 
we we come to the table with our own stuff. So how do we, as employers and as HR professionals, how do we just how do we work to dispel the stigma that still exists within organizations, within work teams around mental health? Educate, support, educate, support. It's even though, like you said, you see it everywhere. There's a lot of people in the world that probably don't even want to tell anyone that they're struggling with it, even though it's everywhere. They may feel like you may judge them or feel some type of way because you don't present yourself as having these things. Once those relationships are established, then you can go to your boss, go to your colleague, even your colleague setting the room for you if you don't feel like you may have enough energy or just enough courage to go and talk to your boss. If you trust your colleague enough to say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And your colleague is like, is it okay if I go tell our boss? Because, you know, if they can help you, if we can help you together, then you need this support, then we can do it. Even if you got to file for FMLA, um, just to take some time off, even though it's unpaid. I mean, if you have PTO or sick leave, you can use that. My boss, when I first started, she told me, I mean, I know about FMLA and PTO and sick leave, but she always made it very apparent that we do deal with a lot of emotions. We do deal with a lot of just energy that isn't even for us, that's just given to us. And that if you need time, you can take that time. I wouldn't count it against you per se, but if you need the help, if you need the time, you need to be able to come to me and say, this is too much. Whether she decides to take that situation off of your plate, well, off of my plate and she handles it because she's been in HR for several years. Or if I'm like, I just can't do this right now because my personal life and my professional life is just too much. Just being able to give me the time if I need it. So yeah, I think that whether your colleague goes in front of you and tells someone or you're comfortable enough with your boss, you have to be able to voice that and say, hey, I need help. And the only way to dispel that is just letting people know, like everybody has something. It doesn't matter whether you see it, you you know it, you, you see the paperwork, it doesn't matter. Everybody has something. Whether you know you have something today or tomorrow, or you just may never know, everybody has something. So it's just being able to educate yourself with what you have and being able to let persons know that if you need help, I need help and I need you to give me some help. It's good that you say that because I think one of the things that is important about this work and about people who do this work and organizations who employ people to do this work is that, and it's what I've been talking about all month long, is that we have to promote and we have to ensure that people are intentionally practicing and that we are intentionally incorporating radical self-care practices into what we do as organizations. And part of that is it goes right to what you were saying. It's promoting healthy work-life balance. It's, you know, offering the flexible work schedules, offering remote work options, you know, if you can afford it, paid time off, vacations, personal right. days. You know, I absolutely agree that if you are struggling, have a conversation. 
Let's talk about what's going on. Like several times within the organization, if someone is struggling, they will come have a conversation with me. And if they need to take a month off, they will take a month off. You know, I want folks to do what they need to do for themselves first. Right. You got to do what you need to do for yourself first. And the reality about this work is that people do this work because they've experienced something in their life or they've been in touch with something or someone in their life that drew them to this work. Right. Again, if you're looking to make six figures, this ain't it, sis. <laughs> this ain't it, bruh. No, not at all. <laughs> you you come to this work because you want to support you are passionate about your community. You are passionate about the people in your community. You were walking down the street one day and you saw a homeless family and now you want to serve the homeless or it could be a number of things. But there was most I've never met a person who does this work that hasn't experienced something in their life, whether it directly happened to them or indirectly happened to them and they were a witness of it that drew them to this work. Never, ever, ever. Right. I mean, I remember you telling your story. Like for you, it was Miss Betty just going to work with Miss Betty and just seeing her in action and it just drew you to serving. For me, that's all I know. What to, I only know this work. Um, <laughs> right. If you want to pay me to shop all day on a Jeff Bezos store. Okay. I, I can, can do that, that. part-time. Look. <laughs> Still going to serve, but, but I can serve on. Right, I'm going to find a way to do it. However, <laughs> but this is the work that feed, it, it feeds my soul. I love this work. And if we want people to continue to show up and be their best selves, like we have to acknowledge that our staff, they are going to come to the table with mental health diagnoses. Right. And we have to ensure that we are prepared for that. So if you have systems and services and programs and processes in place for your clients, on the back end, you have to have the same things in place for your staff. And if you are an organization that cannot afford health insurance, because at the end of the day, if you are a nonprofit organization, not, not, not all nonprofit organizations can afford health insurance for their staff because it's expensive. Right. Most grants don't pay for it. And, but if you can't, you need to have other things in place. For instance, reach out to a therapist and see if she wouldn't mind providing therapy for your staff pro bono, or maybe you all can barter services. Um, have the flexible work schedule option. Have the remote work schedule option. Ensure that you do personal days. Ensure that you do self-care days. Ensure that you have this policy that if your staff person is struggling, that you have created a healthy culture that they can come to you and let you know that they are struggling so they can do what they need to do, step away and go take care of themselves. Because if they don't, Everything it's a detriment apart. to you 
Absolutely. It's a detriment to the organization. It's a detriment to your clients. It's a detriment to other staff around them. But more importantly, it's a detriment to that professional. And you don't want to be responsible for your staff person having a mental health crisis. Right. You want to call mobile crisis for a client, not for a staff person. You don't want to call mobile crisis, period. But... I wouldn't want to call mobile crisis for a staff person. I don't even know how I would handle so that Brittany, emotionally. What? Right. It's heavy calling calling mobile crisis for a client. So I've never had to call mobile crisis for a staff person. I hope I never have to. I hope we can take other measures. But it's difficult when you have to call mobile crisis for uh, a client or when we have to call the mental health police officers for a client like those are really hard phone calls to make because we do consider ourselves a trauma-informed environment and the last thing we want to do is to call the police but sometimes situations are just that dangerous for us right. that we have to take those measures but I certainly if I don't if it makes me feel like look to do it for a client, I certainly don't want to do it for a staff person. Right. So what steps can organizations take? And we've kind of been feeding this throughout. It's kind of the thread throughout the episode today. But what steps can organizations take to create safe and supportive environments for employees to speak openly about their mental health? You know, I have a, a staff person. I love her to death. But when she's not feeling it, she's like, look, <laughs> I switched up my meds. <laughs> I said, sis, I'm with you. But I love okay. the honesty. I love it. I love and it. And she's very open. She's very honest with me about it. And and I appreciate that. Um, there have been a number of organizations that I've worked at where I've been, you know, had the opportunity to be the leader and I've had staff be like, look, I ain't had my prescription. The prescription <laughs> ain't been ready. And I'm kind of off kilter. Okay. I right. received that. Um, if you'd like to go home, you can go home. You can cancel all your clients for the day and just get all your notes in the system. But those are the kinds of things that we can do to support. So what other ways do you think we can support our employees? So I came up with like an open forum or town hall type conversations without management. So it would just be your client facing employees, those that do more of the hands on, not administrative type of work. So they can just sit down and talk and bounce off conversations back and forth. Again, like I said earlier, removing that emotion mm -hmm. away because someone could say something that could be derogatory or they don't know the correct term. So they just mm -hmm. say blah and just being able to remove that. And if they don't want to, I guess, say something out loud, like have a box that they could write questions down or ideas down that they want to, the topic down. So then um, in the midst of the conversation, so whoever's leading, it can pull it from the box and it could just be anonymous and, you know, just ask questions. And then that person would be able to answer it, but no one would know. So if they do feel like they could be judged by their colleagues or anything like that, it removes that. And then once 
those type of conversations are done. Just being able to bring some of the information to management and the administrative side to say, this is what your employees feel about this. They feel like they need help mm. in this area. So how do you think that you can help them? Do you need help from HR? Do we need to sit down and have a conversation? Do we need specific trainings in regards to these topics so everyone's aware so it won't just be um, one person is being singled out or one person is being removed and just allowing everyone to get that education so everyone is aware of current statistics, things of that nature. But that doing stuff like that would be great. But just allowing the freedom for people to just ask questions. Um, as I was taught in middle school, there's no dumb question. Whether you know the correct terminology or whatever it is, there's no dumb question. It just may not be the answer that you want to hear or you haven't heard before. And just being able to allow people to learn by asking questions without that stigma. That's a good idea. It's almost like, so what one of the things that we do at Wesley Shelter is twice a month, advocates, case management, they come together. Sometimes we're a bit inconsistent with it because things can happen, can throw everybody off and somebody's in front of the magistrate and all kinds of craziness. But, you know, it's trying to be more consistent with it. But it's like, look, this meeting needs to happen whether I'm present or not. But use this time to just just be, you know, just be process cases if you need to process cases and just process whatever you feel you need to process. But also, you know, staff there, they do have relationships that are outside of the organization, which I find to be beautiful. So they'll hang out outside of the organization and they do trust one another, which helps in holding one another accountable when they see one another, like, hey, I noticed that you've been kind of off lately. Is everything okay? And pay attention to your people. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when something is going on and if you are not around your people enough, then you need to spend some time with your people. Like, pay attention to your people. If someone's taken off excessively, if someone is not showing up like they used to, if someone at their work has started to be sloppy or that work has started to be late all the time, like those are things that you need to, to pay attention to because there may be some workplace stressors going on. There may be some things going on that is exacerbating that person's mental health. So you need to pay attention to those things. And then if so, might want to pull that person into the office just to check that person's temperature to see if everything is um, okay. So what do you think are some of the biggest barriers to creating a stigma-free workplace? So I think intersectionality is a big barrier because for you and I, we're Black women. And there's this stigma that Black women are just beyond strong and that we never break, we never crack. But that is far from the truth. We may not display it all the time, but when the doors are closed, we could crumble. But but in public, we could pull ourselves right back together. So those things are what could be barriers. And then sometimes it could just be like professional. You just don't want anybody to be in your mess. You don't want anyone to know you outside of your personal realm. So it's like, I don't like, no. I can't tell you about what's going on at home. I can't tell you about what's going on 
at home with my family members or, you know, anything like that. So that could be a, a barrier too. According to Spring Health, the adult Black community is 20% more likely to experience serious mental health problems. And that's not just women, that's men and women in the Black community. So being able to find the support, whether it's someone that looks like you, whether it is someone that is a friend, a family member, or even a, I mean, if it's your colleague or your boss, just being able to have conversations with them in a way that you can get your feelings across and there won't be any judgment or there won't be any love lost or feelings against what you're saying. Doing things like that could be very helpful. But yeah, the intersectionality of people, I think, is one of the hugest barriers because people just believe that, especially people of color, that we don't have feelings and that we just take it in stride and we're like, "Mm, it is what it is when it's not like that at all we break like everyone else does and the bad part of right i'm sorry about that and the bad part about it is that it's not just in our personal life but it's in our professional life also like you're supposed to feed us shit and we're supposed to eat it right like i'm supposed to say can i get some hot sauce with that no salt and pepper if i i wouldn't (laughs) i don't want it with hot sauce salt and pepper or sriracha there is a limit. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, there is this cultural misconception. There is this gender misconception. You know, a lot of people think they wear this, this strong black woman badge as honor. I don't want it. But it's not. There is a lot of responsibility (laughs) that comes with that badge. And I took mine off. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want it anymore. I don't want that level of responsibility anymore because with that responsibility, you forget who you are. You, you don't put your you mask on first. Taking care of yourself. Yep. Right. You stop taking care of yourself. You know, one of the first episodes for May, I talked about, and you know this all too well, how I was a grindaholic. Yep. Had a million on jobs. And in school. Right. And a parent. Right. And trying to have a social life. Like, I can't. Right. (laughs) So, no more. Like, no more. Working three jobs in school, raising my son. I do not believe that is what, and I believe in God, so I'm just going to say God. I do not believe that is what God wants for our lives. Right. He does not want us out here working a nine to five, then working a six to 10, then, and that's Monday through Friday, then Saturday working an 11 to seven. And then if you could pick up an extra shift doing that, that ain't it, sis. Right. Am I saying that you are not supposed to take care of your responsibilities? Nope. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is at what point Are you putting your mental, emotional, spiritual, social, and professional self first? At what point are you putting your mask on first? At what point are you putting yourself first? At what point that same passion that you pour into your work, at what point are you pouring that same passion into yourself? Or even pouring that into other people, whether it is your kids, family, like friends. You can't pour from an empty cup. 
So you cannot pour from an empty cup. So it's time it to be selfish. Right. Like you got to pour all of that into yourself before you can pour it into your kid, before you can pour it into friends, before you can pour it into family. Because if you are not intentionally practicing radical self-care, I'm talking about a level of self-care that tells everybody, I see you at another time. That tells everybody, I got you tomorrow. One of the things when my brother Aaron was a toddler, his favorite term for everything was maybe tomorrow, everything. (laughs) Everything would be maybe tomorrow. I don't care. You want to eat? Maybe tomorrow. You want to go to sleep? Maybe tomorrow. Like everything was maybe tomorrow. So, hey, if I'm not, Put if you want me to do something and I'm not doing it for myself first, huh, maybe, maybe tomorrow. tomorrow. <laughs> but since so we lose that when we become adults, if we could keep that 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 idea of being a child and saying, "No, I'm good. No, I don't want to. Like, no, I don't want to do that. Maybe tomorrow." I don't even. <laughs> but I don't think we lose it as adults. I think that. So I talked about it in an earlier episode. It was ingrained in me as a child, that this is the only way to function. Mm. You ought to work, 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 work. Like, then, 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 work, 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 work. Like, that is all you were <laughs> supposed to do. You were supposed to work, work, to work, serve, work, serve, work, serve, work, serve, serve, serve. Right. <laughs> serve, 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 serve. Work, 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 work. That is all you were supposed to do. That's all I saw my grandmother do. That's all I saw my grandfather do. That's all I saw them do. All they did was work, church, work, church, church. It's, <laughs> that's all they did. That's what was the schedule again? Did. What was the schedule again? Work, church, work, church, church. That's all they did. So in <sighs> turn, I worked, worked, mom, work, work. That's all I, in school, that's all I did. And I did it so much that, yes, I have something to show for it professionally. Right. But I missed out on so much other stuff. Like I have a good girlfriend in Maryland, Kathy Guillaume Delamar, love her to death. But she's had so many good parties that I have just not (laughs) gone to because I was not conditioned to party because all I did was work. So what did I choose to do instead of party? Work. Work. This is what was ingrained in me as a child. That is how you are successful. You go to work, you go to school, you get your education, you work so you don't have to ask nobody to do nothing for you. Because for me, and I think it goes along with what my Enneagram is, which is the six, I cannot have the bottom fall from up under me. I always have to have stability and security. And so because of that, it's always been work, work, school, work, work, Jawan, school, work. Like that was my life. Never, ever again. Like radical self-care is a part of my life now. Like today, all I did was self-care. My hands were in the dirt. I was planting vegetables. Okay. Okay. Like (laughs) that was my life today. All right. I was outside in the beautiful North Carolina weather planting vegetables. 
and then it rained on my head. But (laughs) (laughs) that's what I did because I have to acknowledge that one, I do suffer from anxiety and I know when things are not structured, when things are not in order, my anxiety will manifest itself. So I have to make sure that I am taking care of me. And as a human service professional, you have to ensure that you're taking care of you because you are taking care of everybody else in your work environment. Right. You are ensuring that your your clients get food stamps. Your clients get signed up for medical insurance. You are ensuring that your clients get their kids signed up for school. And, and your clients are getting this and your clients are getting that. But what about you? Right. Pour that same energy into you. So as we close the episode today, five takeaways that organizations can start doing now to support their staff that may be struggling with the mental health diagnosis. Number one, create a culture of self-care. I cannot stress this enough. Nonprofits can encourage employees to prioritize their self-care by creating a culture of self-care within the organization. And not just any self-care, radical self-care. This can include offering resources, like Brittany said earlier, about mental health, again, flexible work hours, mindfulness classes, and mental health support groups, all of which Brittany mentioned earlier. Number two is providing mental health support. Brittany mentioned earlier about the mental health group, just a group of colleagues just sitting around, just being authentically and unapologetically them. Nonprofits can offer mental health support to employees with a mental health diagnosis by providing access to counseling, therapy, and support groups. They can also train your managers and supervisors how to support employees with a mental health issue, how to identify when maybe Keisha might be manic or Keisha might be off of her meds. When to identify when someone might be off of their medication or when someone might be in a manic episode. And there are trainings. You can become a mental health, you can do a mental health first aid training, which helps you identify these things. Number three, offering physical health benefits. Nonprofits can offer physical health benefits such as a gym membership or yoga classes and healthy food options to support employees. So instead of putting your Rice Krispie treats and chips and all that stuff in the break room, get some fruit and carrots and that kind of stuff in the break room. You can also encourage employees to take breaks. This is part of radical professional self-care. Take breaks in between clients. Make sure you are taking a lunch break every day. When you do these things and when you are encouraging these things in your organization, one, you are enforcing radical self-care and two, you are ensuring that individuals whether they have a mental health diagnosis or not, are doing what they need to take care of themselves. The next one is encouraging work-life balance. You have to encourage work-life balance. Nonprofits can encourage employees to maintain a healthy work 
work-life balance by offering flexible work hours, remote work options, and vacation time. They can also discourage working outside of regular business hours. If the office closes at five o'clock, let that be it. And encourage employees to take breaks throughout the day. So not just after a client, but lunchtime. If you give your folks a 15 break in the morning and a 15 in the afternoon, ensure that they are taking those breaks. And the last one, prioritize self-care for leadership. Model the same things that you want your clients to do because you are not exempt from not struggling with mental health. Also, nonprofit leaders should prioritize their own radical self-care to set examples for employees. Because remember, like we said a couple episodes ago, when you model the behavior, your staff will model the behavior and then your staff can also model that behavior for their clients. Leaders can share their self-care, their radical self-care practices with their employees and encourage them to prioritize their own self-care. These five things are so important and these five things can easily be incorporated into any nonprofit. I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, we have to start putting the needs of our staff first. If you are not you ain't about that life. I encourage you to start putting the needs of your staff first. I want to thank you for joining us today. It is always a good time when you are here. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. So our last poem of the month from the beautifully written book by Alexandra L entitled Love in My Language is called Secure. Before deciding to bloom, I will nestle into myself. Before deciding to show the world a sight unseen, I will settle into my own validation. Because even with the prettiest petals and luscious of leaves, I will be picked, prodded, and persuaded that my beauty isn't enough. I hope I left you with some good nuggets today. And I hope you will seriously Take a look at your policies and procedures and see how you are supporting individuals in your organization with mental health diagnoses. And even if you don't know firsthand if anyone in your organization is struggling with a mental health diagnosis or has been diagnosed with a mental health diagnosis, I employ you to still implement these things into your organization. So as always, remember, radical self-care is health care and kindness is free. So do me a favor and be kind to someone today. I love you so much for listening. Until next time, be good to yourself and others. Bye. Hey.